never, ever marks the spot. I am altering the deep. Pray I don't alter it any further. Most of the intelligence community doesn't believe he exists. The ones that do call him the Winter Soldier. I'm Batman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Top 5 Report, the podcast that wonders... If Storm from the X-Men were to shoot a bolt of lightning at Nightcrawler, would he be able to teleport away in time? My name is Drew. I'll be your host for the evening. Along with me, as always, is my brother, Peter. What's up, man? Here. What's up? <laughs> Not much. Just figured I'd hit us with a, you know one of those hard nerd questions that makes you wonder. <laughs> <laughs> right. <better>. Um, <laughs> I don't think he would, though, right? I feel like lightning travels super fast, but... So does his know. teleportation. <laughs> no, that's true. But how fast could he could he sense the lightning is coming before it hits him? You know, I don't know if Spider-Man had teleportation powers, he'd be able to sense it. Could he get out of the way in time? I don't know. It's a good question. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Just saying. Um, yeah. OK, well, how was your week? Um, pretty good. I feel like I did a whole lot of nothing. So uh, that was pretty great. <laughs> How about you? Have you done anything exciting or fun this past week? Uh, my schedule's crazy, crazy busy all the time. So, yeah, no. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah same. No, here. it's just multiple. <laughs> like, this is the time of year. So I have my, you know, I have my day job, the regular job number one. I have a winter job, job number two. And then I have my Dungeons and Dragons thing that I do for the park district, which is like every other Sunday, but it's only for a couple hours here and there. So ultimately that's my job number three. This is the time of year where all three coalesce into one tightly jam packed schedule. And somewhere in there I have to work in, I need to watch this for the podcast and then do the podcast and then deal with the family and the kids. And like, yeah, right on. (laughs) My upcoming weekend is so tightly wound that I was literally like, there's not a lot of time. Like, it's almost like it's so packed. It's like, I don't have time for driving places. <laughs> I gotcha. In the upcoming weekend. It's nuts. Well, wow. I'm having the, I'm having the opposite experience where it's like, I feel like, you know, the holidays are over and we're into like the dismal winter months and everybody's going into their like hibernation slash seasonal depression modes and just people aren't planning a lot of events and stuff. So I kind of have had nothing but free time to just like, sit and binge tv shows and stuff like that so uh that's pretty great (laughs) right um well since you said that what are you watching yeah so uh there's a couple things um i've watched this week um i'm all caught up on last of us which have you checked that that out yet yes i'm current awesome so i'll save my review for that but Spoilers, I think it's pretty cool. (laughs) Um, A couple other things I wanted to mention, though. Um, I watched the movie Smile, which is uh, the new-ish horror movie. It's on uh, Paramount Plus right now. And uh, 
this is a movie that I went into blind. Like I really didn't know anything about, but I saw that it was getting some hype online and uh, I watched it and it's kind of, it's kind of, I feel like it's pretty short. Like I think it's only an hour and a half, but it's kind of just like a short, fun watch. Um, It's one of those movies that I feel like it might be a little bit overhyped because I feel like, I don't know if I feel like the movie is as deep as I wanted it to be. Like, I feel like it's kind of like the movie's sort of this quick breakdown of the plot is it's about this uh, psychiatrist or therapist or whatever who witnesses one of her patients um, commit suicide in her office. And uh, when the when the patient kills herself, she has like this creepy smile on her face. And uh, ever since that happens, the, uh, therapist is haunted by visions of uh people including that deceased patient um kind of following her or appearing in random spots with that same creepy demonic smile and it's kind of like it kind of has this like it follows level of like if you've seen the movie it follows there's kind of like a weird chain letter aspect to it where each Mm -hmm. victim is also going to become a victim in somebody else. And it's going to be this big chain letter that's going to pass it on. And it kind of has like this creepy smile demon keeps going from victim to victim sort of plot to it. But I felt like it maybe wasn't much deeper than that. So I feel like this movie, I think is a solid horror horror film. But if you go onto like horror Twitter, for example, people are blowing this up and I feel like it's maybe a little bit overhyped, but it is a fun little watch. Like I didn't mind it at all, but the most interesting part I thought uh, there was about this movie is it felt very much like a Japanese horror film. And I don't know if it's based on a Japanese movie or manga or where it came from, but it feels so, um, it was just weird, like the vibe of it and the way the plot progresses and stuff. I felt so much like I was watching The Ring or The Grudge or something like that. And just that in itself seems, I don't know, it almost felt like it It reminded me of the horror movies I was watching when I was in high school, as opposed to the newer sort of like elevated horror films we've been getting for the last few years, which uh, I just thought was really weird. And um Thinking about how, like, every decade or so, I feel like there's a big horror trend like we had, you know, like the Japanese horror films and then the torture horror films came in, like Saw and stuff. And then we got, like, The Witch and Hereditary with, like, the sort of elevated horror stuff for the last decade. It kind of just looking at it through that lens and, like, you might call me crazy, but I really do think Smile felt really Japanese in a weird way. (laughs) Um, It almost made me excited because I'm like the 2020s what's going to be the big defining horror genre of this decade so that's kind of what i was left thinking about um and i had one more thing that i watched i don't know if you have any comments on smile or any i haven't seen it yet um i haven't seen it yet and i loved the the i really enjoyed the trailer like a lot and i was like Mm -hmm. this is one i'm probably gonna have to watch um even even if i never see the movie the trailer was enough for me to go that was such a good like the trailer by itself, do you remember uh, in Grindhouse when they had the fake movie trailers? <laughs> yeah. That's what yeah. this movie felt. That's what the trailer for Smile felt like. Um, but it also, like, every one of those trailers for Grindhouse was like, I want to see that movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Nice. That's awesome. I, I still want to see some of those Grindhouse trailer movies. 
<laughs> Rob Zombie needs to make werewolf women of the SS. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. Right. But um, um, yeah. So then the other thing that I've been watching, not as much as I'd like, but I've been watching as much as possible is uh, that 90s show on Netflix. Um, I don't know if you have the chance to to check this out, Drew. I don't know if you're interested in I that 90s show walked, at all. I have walked into the room while it's been on. And I really wasn't that impressed with what I had seen. <laughs> That's so, okay. That's, however, however, that being said, um, I watched all of Fuller House, and that was uh, not that Fuller House is bad, but it definitely wasn't the top tier amazing production quality that you get out of some television shows. So I, I criticize that 90s show if I've fully watched the entirety of Fuller House. So, <laughs> so um, I actually, yeah. that's actually a really, really funny reaction to the show. Um, I can kind of segue off of that and say, I didn't watch any of Fuller House. Um, I actually, like I watched Full House uh, as a kid, of course, but it was kind of one of those things where it was just on TV. Like I never considered myself a big fan of full house, but, uh, that 70s show on the other hand, I actually was a huge fan of back in the day. I think it's like one of my favorite sitcoms. I think I've actually talked about it on the show, but I think I loved this show, uh, that 70s show when I was in high school. Cause it was the first sitcom that I saw that really felt like it was, realistic when it came to like the teenage characters motivations like everything felt like you were seeing things through the eyes of the teenagers and it was like very realistic as far as the sort of trouble and uh, motivations of those characters as opposed to something like full house or family matters or boy meets world or whatever that felt very disneyified for lack of a better term but you know what i mean like kind of dumbed down and everything's made more innocent. Like I liked that the, uh, that seventies show characters were always trying to get into trouble or trying to sure. get stoned or whatever it was. <laughs> um, so with that being said, I was really interested, but cautiously, uh, I guess I was cautiously optimistic for that 90s show. Like I was a little bit skeptical because I was kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to like this. I don't think it's going to be good. And, uh, it's funny that you said you weren't, terribly impressed about this drew because i actually really love this show um like i said i walked in skeptical but i felt like pretty early on i felt like the humor of the show feels like so in line with the original series um that i i just really like it and i don't know if it's the difference from just picking up and watching it from beginning on through, or if it's, you know, the difference between doing that and the difference between just walking in for random parts. But I really think it's really good. And like most of the new characters, like the new teenagers and stuff in this show, I actually felt were very uh, relatable and likable right away. And I wasn't expecting that. So I don't know. Me personally, I actually really like uh, that 90s show. I'm about I think five episodes in, so hoping to finish it soon. But uh, yeah, I'm digging it so far. Right. Okay. Um, well, I maybe I'll give it a legit go because I've only like walked into the room when it's been on. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. Um. Anyway. Um. Is that all you've watched aside from Last of Us? We'll yeah. Talk? Yeah. Pr pr pretty much. Okay. Um. Well, I watched. I'm starting. I'm finally getting a chance to watch uh, the Cobra Kai season five. 
Um, this segues into news a little bit so I can eliminate one of our news stories. But Cobra Kai Season 5 um, looks it, so far is absolutely fantastic, and I'm having a blast with it. I really – all shows have their ups and downs, and even the downs for Cobra Kai I feel like are still some good quality stuff. Like, overall, this show is really great, and I've talked about it before. Um, so, yes, seriously loving the current season. Um They've announced uh, that Cobra Kai season six will be the final season of the show. Um, so, in my opinion, they had a good they had a good run, and uh, I look forward to seeing that season because I got three episodes left in season five. But I've been looking for a time so I could watch them back to back because they're only half hours. But I can see them like ex- making those final episodes like, a little bit longer. But I kind of want to watch them like a movie. So, um, um, and then. We talked that we we recorded a little early, right? So, um, Vox Machina, did you watch that? No. Um, how did you forget just, about How did you forget about Vox Machina? Because <laughs> there's a, a lot of stuff still coming out. So yeah, I haven't had a chance to watch that, but I guess that's another thing to add to the You're list. Like, well, I I'm guess sorry I'm about doing that. when I get done with the podcast. <laughs> then. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Box Machina got off to a nice, strong start. So first three episodes um, starts off really well. Very exciting action packed, And then rolls into like, you know, kind of gives you an idea of what's going on for the story. And it's just a lot of fun and excitement. And you're like back. And it's just kind of like glad to be back with these characters, if you will. So um, because I have knowledge of Critical Role. Um, mm-hmm. So because I because I'm a fan of theirs, when they did season one. And they were doing the Briarwood arc. Um, that series, that that show, that was probably so. What that was twelve episodes, twelve half an hour episodes. That on the actual streaming show, that was probably like thirty hours, possibly more of gameplay time to get that whole story out. <laughs> so. Um, I can watch this and I can go, Ooh, okay. We're doing that arc part, that part of the campaign, Mm -hmm. but what gets covered is kind of like the interesting part to me. So like, it's kind of like when you read, it's kind of like when uh, Marvel or DC announced what the movie is going to be. So like, Ooh, Hey, it's going to be captain America winter soldier. Cool. Um, I have an idea what that means, but they could still stray a little bit. So as a reader, I'm in tuned but I kind of am still on the ride with everybody else. So I'm not a hundred percent where they're going, <laughs> you know, right on. Yeah. So here's these creators that created this thing and they might tweak it a little bit to get it to where they got to go in a different span of time. So th- you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. um, I'm really excited to see where it goes. Nice, strong start. Um, and then otherwise I watched last of us, which just like Peter said, spoilers, it's cool. Um, <laughs> um, what did you think of Last of Us? Seriously, first impressions. Right. So and and, I, and let me and add in. Have you played the game? <laughs> I was just going to get to that, actually. Okay. So I have not played any of the Last of Us games. I've seen um, some gameplay of it. Like I've had friends playing it. So I've watched it a bit. But I didn't really know any of the lore or anything like from what I saw of the game. It was more me going like, oh, cool character design, really good graphics, um, really brutal um, uh, battle sequences and stuff. That's kind of what I was left with. But I didn't know a lot about the story. Um, 
this is a show that I just realized, um, just thinking back on it, both the first two episodes, both episodes start with a sort of a flashback scene um, that involves the origin of the um, infection, right? I don't know yeah, what's yeah. the best way to refer to it. It's it's not a virus, you know, it's a fungus. And uh, I think the first, the opening of the uh, the first episode had such a brilliant sort of, um, I guess it was like a talk show with like the two um, like scientists talking about, um, you know, threats of like upcoming pandemics like possibilities and the whole the guy who laid out the scenario for like if this fungus can evolve that to uh take over humans like how it will play out and it was such a intriguing um it was just such a, an intriguing idea and then that paired with the super intense i want to call it an opening sequence but it was really the first half of the episode when it shows when the fungus just starts spreading and how everything goes down. And uh, it's this really tragic, but super intense opening. And I feel like it rivals, um, it rivals openings for me, like uh, the uh, Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead movie or uh, 20, 28 days later. Like it really has that sort of like, I feel like it's, it feels pretty iconic and that's hard to say because it just came out. But for me, I feel like it does rival a lot of the great zombie movie openings we've gotten um, for a while. And I think that's pretty awesome. Um, and then from there, um, you know, the, the second half of the first episode kind of went into it was that sort of uh, I can't remember how many years later it was, but it's kind of this is where this problem started. And then it starts establishing the world after that. And, you know, where. Where do these characters pick up? Where are we going from here? And uh, that stuff, at first, I thought it was a little bit tedious, but they did have to do a lot of that world building for you to kind of get back into the story. And uh, then we went into the second episode, and the second episode was just, I felt like, was super action-packed, super intense, and it felt short. Like, I feel like both episodes felt shorter than they actually were, which is the best thing possible. But they both leave you with this sense of, I just want to know where they're going next. Like, how can it already be over? I just want to know where they're going. So that's my vague review of it. But uh, that's kind of where I'm I'm left with right now. Uh, what are your thoughts, Drew? Well, I have more knowledge on the game than you do. Um, so I, I there's been a lot of YouTube videos uh, showing show versus game side by sides which has been kind of cool and like little instagram pop-ups and stuff and it's really a, a testament to them for how well they adapted the game to the show it's also a, a testament to them for getting the creator of the game and putting him in the creator's chair for the show too so to know that those people are the ones heavily involved in making this work the casting couldn't been, could not have been better um Ashley Johnson and Troy Baker are the voice actors who played Ellie and Joel. And I was kind of curious to just like. Troy Baker probably could have played Joel. Like, if you know what Troy Baker looks like, he probably could have. But they wanted an actor that looked more like Joel. Pedro Pascal works. Ashley Johnson is way too old to play Ellie. But they got a perfect actress for Ellie. Um, I do know that Ashley Johnson and Troy Baker both have cameos in this. So I'm really kind of excited to see them pop up because uh, they were very like, we want to make sure that those actors get their, 
you know, get a chance to be on the show. So I thought that was really cool. Um, I loved that cold. I don't want to call it a cold opening, I, but I guess it kind of is with that 1960s television show talking about the virus. And you have the one scientist talking about the virus um, and then uh, rolls into the guy talking about the fungus. He's like, no, it's going to be a fungus. And you're just like, yeah, it's going to be a fungus. That totally makes more sense than all the other zombie stuff <laughs> I've read um, and been into. Um, my concern about this show is that anyone suffering from walking dead fatigue, I feel like the show is dropping at a rough time just because of the correlation. But even though it's not walking dead, if you will, um, and it's not zombies, it's something else. So, you know, there's, there's a lot to that. I think it's a gorgeous show. It's very well done. The production quality is huge. What I loved about that opening bit that you were talking to that super intense, like, Beginning of the outbreak, I guess you could say, <laughs> um, is the best way of wording it. That whole sequence with his daughter and stuff, she's like, it reminded me a little bit of the opening to the Tom Cruise War of the Worlds movie. Um, and the reason I say that is because I remember when that when the Tom Cruise War of the Worlds movie came out, they had there was I was had a conversation with someone about how. You always see the alien invasions from the government perspective. And when they did that movie, you're following everything from the common person's perspective. There's no governments. There's no police. There's no, like, inside information. It's what is happening, and you as an audience are learning it at the same time he's learning it, which is adding to the intensity. So here's this girl that's like, I'm going to go do this, and then, like, a, a couple cop cars come screeching by, and... Oh, there's a helicopter that's like had this helicopter. That's odd. That shouldn't be there. And then the jets and then the news broadcast and the TV's not working. And you know what I mean? Like there's all these little things that are falling into place that have been happening around her, um, which is just that common man perspective. And it just added this layer of intensity. So when you see the first for her, the first infected was the uh, old woman and she comes running out of the house. And Joel shows up and he's like, get in the car, <laughs> you know, because he clearly knows what's going on at this point. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's right now. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, I think it's going to be a really fun ride and I can't wait to watch more. And that's kind of where I'm at. So. Yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. There's like a, I feel like there's so much to say, but I'm also like yeah. drawing a blank because. um. It just feels so open. Like, I feel like I don't know exactly where everything's going. And uh, I'm just excited to see. um, It does sound interesting to start actually hunting down the whole, like, how does the game differ from the show? Like, I know one of the big differences from what I've heard is that in the game, everybody wears uh, gas masks because the infection travels through the air as well. And uh that actually kind of sounds really realistic and cool, but I understand why they don't do it for the show. So I, I am kind of curious about those differences, well, though. Are you are you watching it on HBO like live? Or are you watching HBO Max? Yeah, I, I HBO Max. I okay. uh, I, I don't watching, watch things live. <laughs> are you watching the inside the episodes after the show after the episodes over? I haven't yet, but uh, I might start doing that. <laughs> okay. Well, I watched them. So I watched Game of Thrones when that was on. I watched it live on HBO, right? And then once HBO Max dropped, I basically got rid of my normal HBO so I could just use HBO Max. 
Well, when you watch it live on HBO, you don't get the inside the episodes. But when you watch HBO Max, oh, I gotcha. you get inside the episodes. So for all of House of Dragon, I watched the inside the episodes, which was really nice and I think helpful to just like, oh, OK, I see what you're doing there. I was with you on that. Yeah, I got you. All right. I picked that up. You know, like it's kind mm-hmm. of cool to listen to the creators talk for like two, three minutes after the show. So the inside the episodes for this, they talked about how they had to make some adjustments because they said in the game talking about how it travels through the air and through the spores and stuff is one thing, but that's really difficult to um, show on camera. And that's why, so when they did sort of doing live action, they adjusted it. And that's why like the tendrils and stuff, like, so when uh, that dead body, when the doctor is looking at the, the body on the, in mm-hmm. the, she, and she pulls those tendrils out of the throat. Um, she panics. Um, that's that I thought that was really cool because then later when Joel steps on the hand and like the uh the tendrils start forming up around the fingers in episode two, you know, so yeah, and I, I actually think that makes for some really cool imagery. Like, uh, the first in the first episode when it shows that first, um, that old lady who lives next door who the daughter first uh witnesses, um, as being one of the infected uh people, when she sort of like pulls up from the floor from uh the the body that she was like consuming and she has those tendrils sticking out of her mouth that was so like distinct and so creepy looking and uh yeah i i've i've been talking to some co-workers about the show and from what i've heard it's that's not really a part of the game which i was really surprised at um but my thing is like i for some for whatever reason i just assumed that they didn't do the uh spores traveling through the air thing because they didn't want like all of the actors with speaking lines to just constantly be having gas masks throughout the whole show mm-hmm. which again like i feel like it that might be more realistic to do but i understand that like it probably would get tedious to watch these characters always have to have gas masks on and uh you have to remember like there's a level of are the people watching this show going to relate to these characters as much if you can't even fully see their facial features and stuff like that? So um, it's, it's a really interesting uh, project and everything. So, well, the gas masks, not that we won't see them, but I could see them making sure that like somewhere in the show, someone's going to be wearing a gas mask or two just for the sake of that makes sense. Yeah. They're in there, but we're trying to do something else. So the actors don't have to wear masks all the time. <laughs> right so, on. I mean, Pedro Pascal wears a mask in his other show, like nonstop. So give him a break. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> but in the Mandalorian, it's not every single character. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's kind of what I was thinking. <laughs> I know. Um, all right. Well, that we'll we'll be talking more Last of Us, obviously. Um, so for right now, let's uh, jump on to the news. So we got some things to cover. Um, so. All right. Let's see here. All right. So this I thought was interesting that we're getting news about it now. Um, Thunderbolts is one of the last movies in phase five. We got a little ways to go because phase five starts next month with Ant-Man. But we have a lot of TV shows and movies. (laughs) Thanks. Right. Thunderbolts starts shooting in June. (laughs) Um. To me, that sounds early, but the, when I was thinking about how the Marvel machine works, that might not be early. That might be normal, and we're just looking at it going, they're starting to shoot already. The movie's coming. Oh, no, we got to wait until, you know. So that might be – there might be a lot to that. Um, 
So I just thought that was interesting that it's starting now, but I might be reading too much into it. Yeah, um, fair enough. Um, James Gunn hints at using Marvel actors for DC. Um, James Gunn said in an interview, we have hundreds of roles to cast as I've always done with some of my, well, some will be brand new faces. Some will be actors I've worked with before and some will be actors, you know, I've never worked with. What matters the most is that the actor fits the role and they're easy to work with. Um, it's really nice to hear that, but I think the internet has gone a little, uh, overboard with the, we're going to see Marvel actors in DC films. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, the actors are going to take the jobs where they take the jobs. And we've had some actors already in DC films and vice versa, both go both ways. So it's not that big of a deal. I mean, Ben Affleck was Daredevil <laughs> and then he was Batman, you know, I mean, that's maybe not the best example, but you see what I'm saying? Like, it's yeah, not absolutely it's not unheard of. So um, it's nice to know that James Gunn has a plan and we're just excited to wait to hear for it. <laughs> I, I honestly would go the opposite way of the Internet, to be honest. Like, I actually don't know if I even think it's that special that this is going to happen, because I do feel like all comic book and sci fi movies and blockbuster movies all seem to be just really sharing the same pool of actors and like I'm a little bit more on the fence of like if you're going to be rebooting the DCU like let's bring in some fresh blood let's bring in some faces that we don't know um, but it is what it is um, and this is a huge discussion we could have at a different time you know the whole concept of like are movie stars a good thing? Like, is it good to go to a movie and already have preconceived notions of the actors you're seeing? Or are you actually more immersed when you don't know the people you're going to see in the story? And I think that's a huge discussion. So I'm not trying to go on a tangent. Well, but, uh, okay. Just something. Here you go. <laughs> kind of my perspective on the whole thing. Um, one of my favorite things that I used to do with my friends, just in random conversation, like when you're at work, and you're just you have to do like some mundane project and you and like two friends have to, like two and your work buddies are doing some Monday projects. So you start playing like some kind of a game when you're talking. One of my favorite games to play was the six degrees game with that. Right. right now, the six degrees game started with the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, because you should be able to link Kevin Bacon to anyone, whatever, that kind of thing. And um, within six moves. Right. This person was in this movie with this person who was in this movie, with this person who was in this movie with Kevin Smith. There's the connection. You know, that was the kind of thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I liked doing was two actors. So you throw out any two random characters uh, or actors. You throw out uh, Sam Rockwell to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Six moves go. Right. And that was the that was the game. You had to figure out how they were connected. Now, if you're going to pose a challenge like that, you should always have the answer in your head so you can know if they're right or if they can't get it, you can tell them how to do it. <laughs> There's not always one right answer, but yeah. There's I, not I always one saying. right answer, but now that I've said that out loud, Sam Rockwell was in Mr. Right with Anna Kendrick, who was in Up in the Air with George Clooney, who was in Batman and Robin with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Anyway, um, the reason I say that is that I loved that game. And I'm really good at it. And a lot of a lot, a lot of people like playing with me because I'm good at it because I'm good with picking out the actors from things. Yeah. Marvel has messed that game up in the sense that there are so many Marvel movies and there's so many people in the Marvel movies that now, as long as you can link them to a Marvel property, you're done. Yep. Which is crazy because Kevin Smith, Kevin Bacon is now in a Marvel property. <laughs> so you... <laughs> 
Yep, good call. Um, <laughs> that's actually hilarious. Um, I was going to give up my quick hack for that game. Um, I would always try to uh, link whatever character to uh, Samuel Samuel L. Jackson because he's or not necessarily him, but he's oh, one of those actors who's in a ton of different movies. Right. And, and he, so I always think of Star like Star Wars and Marvel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So now <laughs> since he's Nick Fury, it just makes it so much easier. And there are certain actors like Samuel L. Jackson, uh, Morgan Freeman. Uh, I'm trying to think of there's a number of actors who are in like a lot of stuff. Um, and I feel like if you can find those actors <laughs> and just link them, that's kind of like a good hack for that uh, for that concept. So, yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was funny. So we'll see. Like, you know, yeah. Um, it look, we'll see how it plays out with James Gunn and his casting decisions. I just I think people need to relax. <laughs> I think people are concerned that they're going to go see Guardians of the Galaxy and then James Gunn's going to release his next movie and it's going to be all those actors <laughs> in a DC film. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, we'll see. I, mean, I think I think Chris Pratt could make a pretty decent guy Gardner. Just saying doesn't have to be, but just saying, <laughs> you know, yeah, right on, right on. Um, um, I saw somebody um, promoting him as like Booster Gold, actually, on Twitter. And I ooh, thought that could be kind of a cool. There that could go. be a cool route to down, go as well. Down for a Chris Pratt playing Booster Gold. That could be cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not a big Booster Gold fan. Like, he's fine. He's there. I'm just not the biggest Booster Gold fan, but I'm totally down to see a Booster Gold movie in general. I'm totally down for Chris Pratt playing Booster Gold. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, all right. Um, Kevin Feige says that um, he doesn't think people are, will ever get tired of superhero movies. Um, he yeah, said um, he said on a recent podcast appearance, uh, he dismissed the idea that people will become bored of films based on superhero comics. And the question is that is like asking after Gone with the Wind, how many more movies can be made out of novels? He said there's 80 years <laughs> of the most interesting, emotional, groundbreaking stories that have been told in the Marvel comics. And it's our great privilege to be able to take what we have and adapt them. I think he's right in the sense that it's this is. He, he's right with that statement of Gone with the Wind. They take a book and they turn it into a great movie. And then for a really long time, we see novel to movie, novel to movie, novel to movie. Um, very rarely do you see it the other way around. Star Wars is a good example, movie to novel, mm -hmm. but, um, it's, it, it's, it's a lot of adaptation. And then you'll have a book like a movie like Gone Girl and you'll have people go, well, did you read the book or a show like Game of Thrones? And people go, well, did you read the books or a uh, girl on a train? Oh, well, there's the, it, it's that it's, it's based on this book or, you know what I mean? It is no different than comic books. Oh, did you read the comics? You know, so he, I think he's dead on when he says that. Like, I don't think people are going to get tired of it. So, so, so just playing devil's advocate, I would argue that like, you're getting super, tired of Marvel. No, I wasn't even going <laughs> to say that, but superheroes, superheroes are a specific uh, genre as opposed to mm -hmm. like things based on books could be literally any kind of story. Sure. However, I do think he's right in that. Right now we have superhero cinema and that's like a huge thing. And we had comic books, but before that we had tall tales and uh, mythology and uh, stories of these larger than, than life characters with special powers and stuff has been going on since the birth of time, you know, or since the birth of history or however you want to phrase it. And so I don't think that people are going to get tired of 
movies about characters with powers or, you know, these sort of good versus evil, evil, super powered sort of plots. Um, I do think that it's possible that people will get tired of certain flavors of that. You know, like I feel like we've even seen that within the last few decades where you had like in the early 2000s with movies like x-men and um i'm trying to think of another example but like the early x-men movies for example where they they had costumes but they were really more like black leather like they were very uh they weren't your comic book costumes so it's it is possible that people might go back to that where they want to see more of the sort of like black leather and like trench coat sort of superhero getups as opposed to the comic accurate stuff and maybe things will go in less of a comedic route out and then they'll come back to being comedic and goofy so i think there will be ebbs and flows to the subgenre aspects of it but i do think he's right on in that people are never going to get tired of movies that are about people who have superpowers i think that's a very true and accurate statement sure and i'm with you on that so we'll see how that plays out but i'm with i'm with kevin by right now um okay after years of stops and starts Tron 3 is moving forward at Disney. Jared Leto right. championed the project since 2017, and he'll star in the feature um, uh, with frequent Disney collaborator uh, Joachim Roning, if I'm pronouncing that right, who will direct. Um, the film titled Tron Ares has a script, and um, it'll follow, you know, Tron Legacy. Um, this is cool that that's moving forward. The Tron ride at the park opens on April 4th. That's uh, awesome. And so it was, so when I was down in Disney last April, Tron was under construction. Um, you could actually see it being built, but you didn't really know what you were looking at. And I remember I was waiting in line to get into Space Mountain and you could see it. And you're like, I wonder if that's Tron. And then you grab your map that's in your pocket and you open it up and you're like, that's the building site for Tron. That would make sense. So you're kind of looking at it, trying to figure it out. Um, if you go online, they had they have to do some test rides, right? And probably employees and stuff like that and workers have to test this thing out. There is a test video where it looks like they hooked a GoPro up to the back of it um, and ran the ride. And it's basically a roller coaster, but it looks pretty it looks pretty badass where like you actually sit on a light cycle and ride the roller coaster. Yeah. That's uh, kind of what I was hoping it was going to be. So that sounds awesome. Yeah, right. Um, Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon um, is December 22nd release date on Netflix. Okay. There is. Um, do you remember when I mentioned um, there's a David Fincher film called Killer coming out? Um, no. Okay. So when we did our anticipated movies list. Um, when I was looking up dates for things and seeing what was releasing this year, one of the movies that I saw was not on the list that I was look the couple lists I was looking at was Killer uh, by David Fincher. Um, Michael Fassbender's in it, that kind of thing. David Fincher is one of my favorite directors. Um, so I was like, oh, I want to watch this. The movie wasn't appearing when I was looking stuff up, and I probably should have Googled the movie by itself. But I also thought when I wasn't seeing it on the list that it was still in production. So it's got a November release date on Netflix. Um, And where I found that out is Netflix released its sizzle reel trailer um, this past week where it was literally like two, three minutes of just clips, very quick clips of stuff coming throughout the year. And each one, it dropped a date. 
Um, but I was just excited to see that Rebel Moon gets a Christmas release. So next Christmas, we'll be finally getting to watch Zack Snyder's Star Wars movie. Star Wars, not Star Wars movie. that <laughs> should have been, but isn't. So he made it his own thing. Movie. Uh, and in case you forgot that it was originally pitched as a Star Wars film, we're going to keep reminding you. <laughs> <laughs> so while you watch it on Netflix, you'll that's all you'll be thinking about. Yeah, right. Um, all right. Here's a blast from your past. Biker Mice from Mars will be returning yeah. with a new TV series and toy line. <laughs> Absolutely. I did. Um, I did hear about this. Do you want to like for the sake of our listeners, because this was more your forte than mine. Do you want to explain to them what Biker Mice from Mars was? Yeah. Well, first, I just wanted to say uh, nostalgia is is one hell of a drug, isn't it? I, I feel like <laughs> nostalgia is just running the universe right now. But Biker Mice from Mars. um, the way I describe it is it's kind of I don't want to say it's a Ninja Turtles knockoff, but it was in the era of Saturday morning cartoons where there was a lot of series doing the uh, little kids cartoon that's sort of like about some sort of anthropomorphic animals kicking ass and fighting crime. And that's kind of uh, what Biker Mice from Mars was. It was these three bikers biker mice so they were huge like human-sized anthropomorphic mice with um antennas and they rode my motorcycles and they were from mars and they uh they fought a host of uh or a slew of uh supervillains who much much of the supervillains were anthropomorphic animals as well um it was a super fun show um i didn't watch it like religiously um but it was one of those things that i thought was really cool around first grade when it came out for me and uh, i had a couple of the toys and uh that's really it for me like it just looked badass i think if this is coming back i'm probably gonna watch it um it sounds pretty fun but i don't know your your thoughts on this whole thing are i don't know to what capacity is it coming back is it gonna be a like computer animated show is it gonna be classic animation is it gonna be like an adult swim thing is it gonna be an hbo max like when they said that they were doing the scooby-doo show based on thelma and calling it thelma i didn't realize it was gonna be the adult thing that mindy kaling's doing I thought it was literally like a regular Scooby-Doo show based around Thelma right. as opposed to the right. Like, I didn't you know what I mean? So we don't really know what this is going to be. This could end up being a Rick and Morty version of Biker Mice from Mars. <laughs> you See, know, I, like, I didn't even I I was just thinking we were going to get the X-Men 97 style. Biker you Mice could, from we, Mars, we but. Very, we very well could. But we also could get the. All the people who gave a shit about Biker Mice from Mars are in their 40s now. Let's give them what the, <laughs> you know. Right on. And I didn't even think of that that idea. So that's right. pretty funny. Right. We got to make it grow with them. You know, like, I don't know. All right. Um, all right. So uh, Biker Mice from Mars off the table. Here's the big news for the day. The Oscar nominations dropped. So mm. the Oscar nomination, the Oscar event is March 12th. So that means that, Peter, you and I will be discussing our favorite films. Let me just jump down here. So March 12 is that Sunday. So you and I will be discussing our favorite films from 2022, the week of March 9th. That way our episode (laughs) drops the Monday after or the next day. So we can see what the Oscars think. And then those of you for our listeners who are going to listen to our show, you will know what we think about our favorite movies from 2022 on the following Monday. Uh, Mm -hmm. regardless of winning that's what we'll know uh so that week that's when we'll be doing uh that anyway so the oscar nominations dropped um 
it's funny when I, I when you think of like when people use the word, oh, it was an Oscar snub. It's really weird to say that now, like just thinking about it the long time we've been talking about movies on the show and analyzing and stuff. I just think it's weird to say that. Um, All right. So there's a couple things I want to point out, which is great. First off, this one I got excited for. Um, sometimes when movies release so too early in a year, they're forgotten about come Oscar time. And one that we've talked about really early that we both loved and we were praising going, they should have this locked in for this award. They did not forget about the Batman, which is awesome. So nice. the Batman rakes in three Academy Award nominations. Uh, best makeup and hairstyling. Come on, dude. There's no way after seeing Colin Farrell as the Penguin that you don't <laughs> lock that in, right? Yeah. Uh, Best makeup and hairstyling, best sound look, man. Yeah, that the sound in the movie is phenomenal. The sound editing in the movie and that is um, is phenomenal. Um, the Batmobile, the sound of the Batmobile alone is phenomenal. Like you know, so best sound. The, so the sound of the punches alone, man. Those punches are still ringing in my ears from watching that movie. <laughs> I know. It so and cool. then it also got nominated for best visual effects. So. Yeah, they're all technical awards, but it's a nominated, it's an Oscar nominated comic book movie. See, um, I feel like score, I feel like it had such a memorable score too, though, that I kind of wish it had that nomination. The as well, scores, but... I, and I thought so too. When I heard the score list, I was like, oh, that's not what I was expecting. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, that's okay. Like, it doesn't always have to be what you're expecting, right? Um, I, I do I do think I do, I didn't see like every movie that came out the past year, but I do feel like the Batman did have one of the most memorable um, pieces of music behind it. So that's kind of why I was thinking of that. But uh, no, go go on. Sure. Well, um, since you brought up score, one of our one of my absolute favorite composers, John Williams, got nominated again um, for his score for the Fablement. Okay. Uh, which makes John Williams the most nominated person alive. With a, <laughs> awesome. With a grand total of 53 Oscar nominations. That's astounding. The only person who has more than him is Walt Disney with 59, and he's no longer alive. <laughs> so right um, John Williams is the most um, nominated person in, you know, and, uh, and right, rightfully so. That's yeah, that's rightfully awesome. so, absolutely rightfully so. Um, so I just thought that was awesome that he got a fifty his fifty third nomination. Um, okay, here we go. Best picture nominations. So I don't want to go through the entire list because we'll be here for a while talking about them. But I was for example, I was very happy to see that Ana de Armas got nominated for best actress because um, yes, yeah, some of the other actors probably did a great job, but. Um, I was so impressed with her work in Blonde that I'm like, please make sure she gets an Oscar nomination. Um, Rochelle, uh, the I'm drawing a blank. I don't want to like mess up her name. Um, I really don't. Hang on a second. Let me just look this up a second. I just uh, I just don't want to mess up her. Sorry. Michelle Yo uh, from Everything Everywhere All at Once right. got nominated. She's the first Asian to get the Best Actress nomination um, or a leading role nomination, which mm -hmm. in, in the history of film, that that's awesome. And then Ki-Hu uh, Ki Kwan, if I'm pronouncing that right, um, he got uh, nominated for Supporting Actor and that and um, awesome stuff. 
by the way, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which I have not watched yet, which I'm kicking myself because I haven't had a chance to watch it, raked in <laughs> yeah. a total wait, raked in a total of 11 nominations. Nice. Uh, so um, here's what we got for best. It's got it that got the most of them for the for the uh, nominations. Here's what we got for their best picture nominees of the year. And before I read this list, um, Steven Spielberg years ago, I, I want to say about 10 years now, had a speech at one of the Oscars. He was presenting the picture. He was prevent, presenting the award for best picture. And he came out and gave the speech about how um, the they have to pick one movie because it's an award show but ultimately at the end of the day as long as you make the list of nominees for the best pictures you're a best picture right does that make sense like this is the list this is the best pictures of the year so if you're on the list you're a best picture but it's an award show so they have to pick one What's weird is that the stigma is is that when you're an actor and you're nominated for an award like that and you don't win, it's different where, oh, they won the Oscar versus they were nominated for the Oscar. (laughs) You know, Um, but with the movies, it's like they're the best. These are the best, you know. So anyway, that being said, the Oscar nominees for Best Picture are All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar The Way of Water. The Banshees of in- Insurun, if I'm pronouncing that right, um, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle, wow. of, Triangle of Sadness, and Women Talking. Okay. Um, I've seen some of these already, which is great, so I'm going to try and fill in the slot before March 12th to see if I can get the rest of them watched. Um, I Here is my prediction, and I'm going to say it now. I want Top Gun Maverick to win. I think Top Gun Maverick should win. I have a feeling the Fablemans is going to win, but I also think that everywhere and everything, everywhere, all at once is going to be the upset and and will probably take it out from under everybody. <laughs> that's my prediction. Or everything, everywhere, all at once is the one that's going to win everything but Best Picture. Because there's usually <laughs> one of those. I, I could see that. Um, I um, honestly was really surprised Top Gun got the nomination, though. That's I am like I, I think it's deserved, but I just didn't expect that. I am not. Um, I'm not surprised at that at all. And like I, I had a feeling Top Gun was going to get the nomination. But here's the thing about Top Gun that has me a little baffled. Top Gun raked in a total of six Academy Award nominations. Best film editing. OK, saw that one coming. Best original song. It bums the crap out of me that I'm not hearing the Lady Gaga song on the radio. That's a phenomenal song, and it's Lady Gaga, so she has the, like, pop star power that she her song <laughs> should have been on the radio all summer long, but it wasn't. I have a feeling they were holding it for the, she's going to win the Oscar, and then it'll just be on the radio all the time. <laughs> oh, maybe. Um, um, kind of like, I, I think... like the Shallows. When she did um, A Star is Born, The Shallows like wasn't on the radio until after it won the Oscar and then it was all over the place. So oh, there you go. I, th- I, I was just going to say the One Republic song was the mm-hmm. upset out of uh, that movie where that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the one that everybody glommed on. Yeah, because that, 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 one's, that one's all over the place. It's, um, it's also just a faster, upbeat song, so it makes sense that people listen to it more. But uh, yeah, okay. keep going. Um, Tom, Top Gun was also nominated for Best Sound. Gotcha. All right. Mm-hmm. Best visual effects, all right. Best adapted screenplay, 
Gotcha. And Best Picture. Here's where I'm confused. And believe me, I'm not in the Academy. I just don't get this at all. Top Gun Maverick is nominated for Best Visual Effects. But it's not nominated for Cinematography. Yeah. I don't know if I fully understand that at all. <laughs> but that's okay. You know? Like, I feel like that should have been... they That is real cinematography in real jets and they did all that aerial stuff on like to be as real as humanly possible i just don't know if i understand that one so it's fine <laughs> I, I agree with that <laughs> um it's fine it is what it is but i just thought that one was that was a little weird um but yeah that's it so march 12th we'll all be our butts will be in the seat for the oscars to see who's <laughs> our uh, best picture of the year i don't know do you watch the oscars every year or do you just like live vicariously through me when I bring it up on the show? <laughs> a little bit. Uh, I live vicariously through Twitter while the Oscars are going on. No, so, so I watch it some years, but it's not like a guarantee for me, you know. But uh, um, I was going to say the real question this year, like forget all the categories and nominations. How many slaps are we going to get this year? Is there going to be a lot of slaps this Oscar? <laughs> Right. Is this going to be the slappiest Oscars Oscars award ceremony we've had so far? That's what I care about. So I don't know if we're going to get any slaps this year. They're gonna, <laughs> like, it's funny. It's it's funny because, you know, hey, there's got to be like there's got to be some level of like there's no way we're letting that happen again this year. But at the same time, there's got to be like um, if you think about uh, if you think about the. um ratings or sorry i'm no like slight slight train of thought there you could kill someone with your bare hands and they let those people on airplanes so (laughs) um we'll see uh we'll see how the oscars plays out with the slaps (laughs) well i was just thinking like think of the marketing they could do like they could be like Last year was the slapping. Well, this is the sequel. <laughs> How many slaps are is there going to be? And like really played up, play up the whole like, you know, this is the sequel. So you got to do it bigger and better than the last time. Uh, I'm to- totally joking. I hope yeah. that everybody is very, uh, very polite and well-mannered at the Oscar. It's just kind of just something I'm kind of joking about. Yeah. So. Well, how about we talk about the Oscars when it happens and talk about um, our list for the night, because that's all that I mean, that kind of rolls right into the same category. Right. On. Um, sound good. All right. So let's talk about the list um, and roll the thing. And now for the top five. Right, Peter, this was my pick. Um, so I was just thinking, I was scrolling through our list of lists. What have we not discussed? And I was shocked to find that we've never talked about our favorite directors before. And you made it seem like this was going to be a really difficult thing to put together. I found it easy slash difficult. It was kind of like a mediocre list for me. Um, and I'm literally like, what am I basing my prowess on and all that stuff? But um, why do you think about the list before we get going? And yeah. Um, yeah, it was hard. It's uh, I don't you know, we do some lists and I come in like super confident, you know, and this one, I feel like I don't know if I'm happy with my list, but I also don't know with this topic if I'm ever going to be happy with it. There's so many directors that I love that like didn't make my list and it was super hard to narrow down and then there's also like the conundrum of like 
you might love a director because of one very specific thing that they do. And then otherwise, like maybe otherwise they're not super well-rounded. Maybe you don't love everything they do, but you love their, you know, you love their cinematography or you love the way that they instruct the actors on set or their creative oversight. Like there might be something really specific that you love so much. So you're like, they got to make my list, but then they can't because they have flaws in other areas. And it was a really, really hard thing to narrow down. And that's why I'm saying like, I don't know if I'm completely happy with my list, but I don't know if I was ever going to be happy with this topic. Um, but that being said, I mean, I do have five directors to talk about, so that's great. Good. Do you have any honorable mentions? Yeah, I, I have two honorable mentions okay. as well. Right. So, um, yeah, I take it. You have two as well. I as well. So why don't you give me your first? Cause it was my pick. So you get to go first. Yeah. Uh, so I picked two honorable mentions. They're both directors. I love both directors. I've talked about, a ton on the show and uh yeah i don't know if it was just like not that like i think they're necessarily flawed or not but i do think both of these directors are not quite the level i wanted them to be for my list i guess but uh the first one i went with isn't going to surprise anybody but i feel like it is a little bit of uh probably not mentioned a lot in top directors uh categories but i went with kevin smith because hmm. kevin smith I don't know if I think he's the greatest director ever sort of thing. And I think some of his creative choices I actually don't necessarily like. But at the same time, God damn it, he's made some of my favorite movies of all time. So he had to make my list at least as on, as an honorable mention sort of thing. And it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know that I think he's one of the best directors ever, but he's also made some of my like favorite movies ever at the same time. So it just kind of ended up as an honorable mention in that in that way so yeah i hear you with the kevin smith and the big thing with kevin smith for me like yeah he might not be the greatest director on the on the planet but i think he's a wonderful storyteller and right, sometimes right. that's and sometimes that's not necessarily like the director has to like director's a weird category when especially when you think about it in like unlike the movie industry so like when you have like the best director award at the oscars right it's a weird category because what they put into it to say best director um we're talking about our favorite directors and the films they work on and these are and he's definitely made some of like the some of the movies i've laughed my butt off at and watched repeatedly and like really enjoyed and embraced um i'm a fan of his from not just his movies but his podcasts his television stuff um the brand the kevin smith brand in general um, so I look at this as him being a director also comes down to the fact that he's so embracing of his fans and he's so there for when, when we, when we have our fan, you know, when he has fans come to see him or talking directly to them and you're always involved with what he's doing at all times, there's this level of, uh, it's, it's that break between the film universe and us down here how he sits on everything. You know what I mean? So there's that really cool, there's no disconnect. It's like Kevin Smith's like, this is what I'm yeah. working with, guys. Let me tell you about it. Let me, you know, I hope you all come see the movie, but let me tell you a little bit more about it and stuff. Like he just wants us to enjoy good storytelling. And at the end of the day, he knows he's a storyteller. Yeah. So. And I, th I think that's all true. And that's kind of how you cultivate a uh, fandom and a sort of like family of followers that you can relate to and bring on your journey. And uh, you really do you know, cultivate a loyal fan base doing those things you were just talking about. And uh, not to go on too much about Kevin Smith, but I'll just say this really quick. Like another thing I love about his 
movies is that he the way he shoots movies feels very accessible. It's one of those things where you watch his films and you think to yourself, I could do this. And uh, a lot of times those are the most inspiring things where you watch something and you're like, this is cool and I like it. But I also feel like I could I could throw my hand in at creating something like that. And I think that's one of my favorite parts of him, too, is he's a director that inspires creativity um, to me. So there sure, you go. Sure. Um, well, um, I guess that rose into mind. And in terms of storytellers, this is one that I kind of struggled with when I was making my short list. And I'm like, where do I put this? Doesn't even make the list, that kind of thing. Um, and this is James Cameron. Um, he is down here on the honorable mentions list because I wasn't sure if I could say he's one of my all-time favorite directors. I think the guy makes really, really, really good movies. But sometimes I feel like his storytelling is almost better than just putting his face behind the camera and giving direction. Um, and that's why he's making an honorable mention on my list here, because I think he makes really good movies and he's definitely made like, I love aliens and Terminator two. And I think Titanic's great and true lies is absolutely wonderful, but sometimes it makes me wonder if it was more him in the writer's chair, putting the story together than it was being behind the camera, making the movie. It makes me wonder with that, with like true lies, for example, if James Cameron's producing and writing, and talking to the actors and stuff, does the movie still come out the same? Okay. You know, maybe not with maybe not with Avatar, but with some of the other ones. Like I just I feel like sometimes he comes down to being a storyteller. I feel like I like his writing more than I do his directing. And I'm not a hundred percent. Oh, sure. okay. I get. I get. I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. That's why I said. That's why I'm making an honorable mention. So. Yeah. Nice. Anyway. anyway. Okay, so my next honorable mention, um, another director we've talked ad nauseum on the podcast, but uh, I actually went with Zack Snyder. Um, Zack Snyder, I really like as a director. I think he he has some of the best looking movies um, that I think I've ever seen, um, just in my personal opinion. Like, I love his approach to the cinematography and the set work and uh, the uh, character design and kind of like how he oversees like the creative aspects of his films. Like visually, I feel like he produces some of the my favorite just visuals in cinema that I've ever seen. Um, Sorry, I do think I that typing. I was typing. Who'd you say? Zack Snyder? Yeah, Zack Snyder. Okay. Um, I do think there there are times when I watch Zack Snyder movies and like as much as I love him, like I do. I will admit sometimes I think he goes a little darker than I would like. And sometimes he really likes to combine um music with imagery so you'll get um these sort of like montage sequences and all of his movies and sometimes i think those linger on a little bit too long but he's still like one of my favorites so i guess what i'm saying is i don't think he's perfect but i also think he is damn good and he's definitely one of my favorites um and it's really a lot of people's distaste for him actually just comes down to per personal taste because some of the things people complain about are actually things that are like my favorite parts of his movies. So it's really, I think a lot of uh, distaste for Zack Snyder is a lot more subjective than I think people want to admit in a lot of cases, but uh, yeah, he's, he's awesome. And uh, the last thing I'll say, which we've talked about before, but he has a lot of very intricate imagery and uh, messages and meanings he hides in his movie movies. And that's really cool to dissect as well when it comes to um certain lines of dialogue or certain 
background elements like relating to some <laughs> reference to some like old mythological tale or like he has a lot of just weird easter eggs in his movies that are really really cool as well and uh, if you're interested into going down that rabbit hole i would just hunt down somebody from the snyder cult on like twitter or something like that and just seeing the crazy uh easter eggs that have, are found in like batman v superman and stuff like that so um yeah yeah so my next one my next honorable mention was also Zack snyder oh awesome for <laughs> literally all the reasons you said um, <laughs> great <laughs> why Zack snyder doesn't make it in the actual list for me is because i feel like in terms of him being one of my favorite directors he's very new to my favorite director list oh i gotcha i gotcha um and where like i'm I don't think there's one movie he's made that I have disliked, but it's also he's new enough to my favorite director list that um, I'm still feeling him out. But for all the reasons you said, he's, you know, that's yeah, that's why he is where he is for me. So awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I didn't expect to match on that one, but that's cool. Neither did I. Um, and I actually I actually expected you to be like, oh, it's in your honorable mentions, but it's in my actual list. You know, I thought. <laughs> um what is your first actual pick of the night? Yeah, so my first actual pick, this is where it's hard to uh, decide what order I want to do these in. But uh, I actually went with uh, Peter Jackson, which mm. I feel like Peter Jackson is kind of a shoe in, but he kind of isn't because he brought to us the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Like he brought us that series. And I feel like 10 to 15 years ago, he would be the shoe in like number one favorite director of a lot of people. And I feel like in recent years, he doesn't get that same amount of clout placed on him. And so mm. that's why I say he's kind of a shoe in, but kind of not. But uh, I love Peter Jackson and he's somebody who I haven't seen every one of his movies, but everyone that I do see, I pretty much for the most part, really, really love uh, the Hobbit movies. I am a little bit wishy-washy on but other than that like I really love all of his movies that I've seen um, and I have always really been inspired by how he started off with movies like Bad Taste and uh, Dead Alive and like these really sort of like schlocky gory um, hey, sort of like made, don't forget he made the Frighteners and that was great <laughs> right on but yeah he's he's somebody who started off with these really like super gory sort of like indie horror films and uh, i love that he went from doing that to bringing the lord of the rings to live action like he went from like super lowbrow but really amazing stuff to bringing like one of the most heralded film trilogies to live action and i always found that uh, story arc of his own career really inspiring and uh, when it comes to Lord of the Rings some of the best movies I've ever seen like just period they're amazing um, I one of my favorite parts of Lord of the Rings is like in Fellowship of the Rings um, there or Fellowship of the Ring there's a part where uh, there's this they're all in like a tavern and there's like a fight that breaks out and there's that iconic shot where the ring gets flipped up into the air and uh, Frodo's like reaching up trying to catch it and the ring lands on one of his fingers and it's this really iconic like bird's eye view shot of that happening and the ring slides onto Frodo's finger and he turns invisible amazing sequence the thing is that shot is directly out of the ralph bakshi animated lord of the rings movie from like the 80s and mm -hmm. the reason i bring that up is because 
you see that and you start paying attention to the rest of the Lord of the Rings and you realize that like to prepare for these movies, Peter Jackson, I think literally consumed everything Lord of the Rings based. He possibly could, because if he didn't, why would he steal that shot from an eighties animated version of this movie? And it's just like, I remember seeing that shot and just thinking like, this is a guy who behind the scenes puts so much work and love into his craft and I thought that was really awesome as well. So I could go on talking about Peter Jackson and I don't know if you want to say anything, Drew. So I don't want to gush over him too long, but I think he's a uh, yeah, pretty great director overall. <laughs> I don't well, think anybody's going to deny that, you know, <laughs> when you think about where he started from. But like you got a point about the Lord of the Rings, like it's that's a that's a feat to try and put those on screen. Yeah, uh, it's a feat to try and um, capture all that in the time frame that he did. And it's their masterpieces. Um, I'm really like, to be completely honest, I'm still shocked that they didn't want to consult him at all when he did. Um, when the they Amazon did the, show, right? The Amazon show, like they didn't even want his opinions, which I found to be a little bit weird, but whatever. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Um, but. It, they are masterpieces and they're really good movies. Um, I did a rewatch of the Hobbit films because um, I didn't really like, like the Hobbit films when they first came out. There's some stuff I was just like, okay, that's a little like, all right, what, you know, like I just didn't yeah. like them, but I did a rewatch of them and they're a lot better than I remember. So it was just kind of like, I just wanted this like something fantasy. So I rewatched them and they're good. Okay. They're still nice. good movies. So, awesome. uh, but yeah, so no, Peter Jackson's great. And like, even when you think about um, King Kong, um, oh, good call. Peter good, Jackson, yeah, good Kong. It's a phenomenal movie. And just thinking about like my only quibble with King Kong is some of the dinosaur um, CGI, I don't think was nearly as good as what we saw with like Jurassic Park. So that kind of bummed me out a little bit. And that yeah. bummed me out a little bit, but ultimately the movie was amazing. So that's fine. Everything else was great. So <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, for, I forgot about King Kong, but yeah, great shout with that one. Yeah, he just he knows how to shoot. He knows what he like. He knows what he wants. Like, he's he's a really good director. Anyway, um, speaking of other good directors, uh, my first actual pick of the night is Tarantino. Uh, nice. Tarantino. Look, we've talked a lot about him from our love to Kill Bill to Pulp Fiction to Reservoir Dogs and stuff. I don't need to go on and on about it. But one of the things I wanted to point out about Tarantino is he didn't go to film school. He's mm-hmm. a director that was like he watched enough movies and basically said, why not me? And started writing original stuff and started directing his own stuff. And here we are now going, what's Tarantino's next movie? I mean, I loved um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I love Kill Bill. I love Reservoir Dogs. Like he's just got some great movies under his belt, but they're all originals and that's something really cool in a world where we get lots of sequels remakes and reboots you have a guy like tarantino that's giving us something real brand new um original and you're just like this is great more of this you know so absolutely that's a that's actually a really good point because there there's nobody who shoots a movie quite like tarantino and there's nobody who writes dialogue quite like him and he's one of those people who i feel like you could be blindfolded and you would still know that it's a Tarantino movie because his music choices and dialogue and just subject matter is so distinct. And uh, yeah, I love that you touched on um, that sort of, I feel like pretty similar to Kevin Smith actually like, and I know they have, 
I don't know if they're friends, but I know they have a mutual respect. Like they're at least friendly, um, you know, yeah. career acquaintances. And Kevin's and, uh, daughter was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh yeah, good call, absolutely. But th- they both have that background of like, I know Kevin Smith went to film school for like a semester, but they have that more so background of like working in a video store and just watching movies all day and eventually like I can do this because I've watched enough of it and I know what it takes to make a good film so uh yeah awesome pick this one made my short list it didn't make my final list but uh definitely Tarantino was like super up there for me so good call there's something else I was gonna say about Tarantino oh my bad (laughs) no you were going on when you were talking I was like oh that's perfect I need to remember to say that and it's literally like just off the top of my mind anyway maybe it'll come back anyway um yeah go ahead man what's your next pick for the night right um so my next pick um i actually went with uh david fincher um who directed films like seven and fight club and uh, zodiac which is one of my favorites but he also did like gone girl like you mentioned gone girl drew and he is a guy who is known for I feel like he's known for really gritty crime movies because that's a lot of what he does. But man, David Fincher can he knows how to direct a film like he his cinematography is like super unique and super memorable. Like some of the shots from Zodiac just stick out in my mind, like even the opening shot of the movie when you're just looking out of the window of like a car in the I believe 1970s, like going down like a, a rural street and that just it's it was so simple but so distinct and like uh i think all of his movies have really genius level cinematography things like when you look at when you watch the movie fight club and uh before tyler durden shows up when he does show up in the film but he shows up as flashes in the background the sort of like blink and you'll miss it oh brad pitt just randomly (laughs) i just randomly saw brad pitt out of the corner of my eye i wonder what that's about and i think he he really approaches his craft in a really subtle, but like just super smart sort of way. And I love that he, he does have that notoriety as like this really like gritty director. But I feel like if you watch a movie like uh, the social network, like I feel like everything in that movie felt very um, almost really like sanitized and like overly clean. And uh, it definitely, gave you a different vibe than you get from a movie like seven, for example. So I love that. I love the subtle ways that he's really distinctive in his storytelling. And uh, he's obviously a guy who works with a lot of amazing stories that he takes on. He has a lot of really cool um, actors that I love that he works with too. So um, yeah, I just think he's, he's great. I don't have a bad thing I could say about David Fincher. You know what I mean? Um, What's interesting about David Fincher um, is that, um in the midst of what you said first off um i remember what i was gonna say about tarantino so i'm gonna go back just a little bit <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, tarantino <laughs> kind of has that signature style i think the first time we really saw it with tarantino where you show the ending of the movie first and then you go back to see how you get there um that's oh that's, right, on, right on that's a very signature thing for tarantino um the reason um however uh what we're talking about right now is the um uh david fincher we match on david fincher actually awesome um and you're right about this these he has a very specific way of shooting and even if it's like a bright story there still seems to be like this dark undertone um like the way he shot uh social network for example um just real like 
even though it's not your standard Fight Club 7, you know, mentality, the way that movie was shot still had that dark undertone, still had that sinister feel to it and all that stuff. He just has this really cool way of shooting things. Uh, Gone Girl, you brought up. Um, some of the shots in Seven just always stick in my mind for certain, the way he framed certain shots and the way he had actors do certain things and the direction he gave to people. Um, Fincher's a great director, and like I said, I'm looking forward to Killer, which is out later this year. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, not to, like, keep hearkening down on uh, David Fincher, but I do think, like, the movies we've brought up in this, uh, with this director, you know, Seven, Fight Club, like, these are movies that, are going on like what 20 or 30 years old at this point and people are still talking about them like i feel like it's every couple weeks i hear somebody in my daily life bring up seven and uh, it's just awesome that he's left us with so many super iconic films like that so yeah yeah all right uh since we matched on fincher which i have to toss it back to you so what's your next one yeah so my next one um another director that i've uh I've talked about a lot before. Um, at one point, he was my absolute number one favorite director. I don't know if he's still at that spot, but he's definitely one of my favorites. And that is uh, Guillermo del Toro. Um, I love this guy's movies. I think he's somebody who can take he can take like a superhero movie like the Fight Club films and turn those into something that's funny and action packed, but also beautiful and has like deeper meanings when it comes to like the character's growth and spirituality. Um, I like he's obviously he's given us movies like Pan's Labyrinth um, or uh, The Shape of Water, which I think both of those movies are masterpieces for a lot of different reasons. But speaking of something like, well, actually, both of those movies are also like really tasteful um kind of like you know they're tasteful oscar nominee sort of movies but they're also very um they skirt the line of being of both horror and fantasy and that's one of the things i love about guillermo del toro too is he's like he's a huge nerd and he gives us these really tasteful beautiful things but underneath it all you can still sense that he is that kid who loved monster movies and loved kaiju movies and comic books and stuff and you really can feel that at the same time as it being this oscar nominated film and that's like one of my favorite parts of him um he also like uh he the special effects um both like actors and artists that he works with are always really awesome like i feel like the sort of prosthetic creatures and stuff that are in his films are some of the coolest sort of just practical effects I've ever seen. But he also works with people like Doug Jones, who played like uh, the fawn in Pad Pan's Labyrinth, as well as the pale man, um, as well as like Abe Sapien and the Hellboy movies and stuff. And I think uh, Doug Jones is one of the coolest, um, just one of the best actors when it comes to playing like those like prosthetic creature sort of characters. And so that's one of those things where like Guillermo del Toro, you can tell he knows how to put a team together and he knows how to tell a good story. And uh, he's honestly somebody who I feel like as much as I'm saying, I also feel like there's mysteries within his cinematography and stuff that I still don't know. Like, I feel like I could talk for two hours about Pan's Labyrinth, but still don't feel like I scratched the surface. And I think it's that mystery to a storytelling that's also really intriguing to me. So uh, yeah, 
Guillermo del Toro. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this guy, Drew, but definitely well, one of my favorites. I mean, Pan's Labyrinth, Shape of Water. Like we've talked like not, nonstop about how amazing Pan's Labyrinth is, and you're right. Yeah. One about the one the storytelling, <laughs> two the visual style that he has, but then you throw throw in his love for monsters and practical effects and stuff. It's like he's got some of the most memorable creatures. Um, mm-hmm. I know I never saw the second Hellboy movie, but I mean, just look how he handled Hellboy. Yeah. You know, like it's just. Del Toro's got this really great eye and he's got this really cool way of creating a social commentary for creatures that it's almost like, it's almost like Del Toro is Frank, Dr. Frankenstein. And these, <laughs> and these monsters are his monsters that he wants you to have an emotional connection to. Right. The way you have an emotional connection to the monster in the original Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's like he sees himself, maybe he sees himself as the Mary Shelley of our generation, if you will. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he would, I'm sure he would be happy to get that compliment. So yeah, yeah right. That's awesome. <laughs> maybe I'll get to tell him someday. Um, all right. Tossing it back to me. Um, my next one, and we can blow past this one pretty quick. I was going to put this, this was more towards the bottom, but um, we talked about him earlier, but that was Kevin Smith. Um, oh, sweet. <laughs> so, yeah, I just it comes down to the rewatching of his movies it comes down to me thinking he's a good storyteller. He may not be the greatest director, but it's that connection he has to the fans that yeah. really makes him kind of stand out in my book. So. Awesome. Yeah. I did not expect to match on that one, but it totally makes sense. And uh, yeah, he's just one of those like he, I don't think he's the perfect director, but he's also like one of the most inspiring directors and he makes movies that I connect to unlike anybody else. And that's what I love about him, you know? Um, and yeah. like, he is, he is great. So I don't want to undermine that, but I do understand people's criticisms of him as well, mm-hmm. but he is great. So that's kind of where I sit with, with Kevin Smith. So, yeah. Anyway, um, what do you got for me for your second to last pick of the night? Yeah. And luckily these aren't ranked because honestly, like all of my picks could really go pretty high up there. But uh, for my second to last pick, um, I went with Sam Raimi. Um, oh, okay. And uh, he, I don't know what it is because I don't, I don't know that Sam Raimi's movies are as distinct as like a David Fincher or Guillermo del Toro or some of the other people we've talked about, but they kind of are when you get to know Sam Raimi, like once you've watched enough of his movies, you do start to, recognize how they all fit together but they're they fit together in really subtle ways but sam raimi is another guy who i don't know if he is to this day but he was my favorite director for a pretty good chunk of my life and it's just because he it's a lot of the same stuff that i said about like guillermo del toro where he brings you these awesome movies but you can still sense that you can still sense that nerdy kid who's just excited to be making something like inside of him like you can still sense that um and like kind of pretty similar to what i said about peter jackson too where sam raimi is a guy who started making evil dead and it was like this super low budget super gory horror film that he just like went into the woods with his friends to make and they you know, they had to, they got a budget together and it wasn't a huge budget, but it wasn't a tiny budget either. But they were just kind of like, we're going to put together the goriest, most terrifying thing ever. And it ended up being a hit. And uh, he went from doing like this crazy gory horror movie. And then he went to doing like the Spider-Man films in the early 2000s and being like one of the biggest names when it comes to like 
family friendly, like superhero cinema. And I think that's like such an inspiring thing to see that that trail from indie to like mainstream of the mainstream success. But uh, I, I don't know. I've rewatched the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films so many times. Like, I love those films. And some people say those do or don't age well. But to me, they're at least the first two I do feel like are perfect. I think the third one has some flaws, but there was also some friction where it was Raimi working against the studio in a lot of cases. And because of that, I think you do see some friction in that film, but I also think there are some beautiful moments from Spider-Man three. Like if you watch Spider-Man three and you watch the sort of awakening of the Sandman, like there's this really beautiful sequence where there's, the camera's doing like a circular shot around the the pile of sand that slowly starts undulating and you see like a hand form up from the sand and then it falls apart and then you see like a face form up and eventually it grows into the Sandman villain that we all know and love. But I remember thinking that sequence was one of the most beautiful things I've seen. And it's like, yes, this is Spider-Man 3. This is like a pretty flawed film, but it still has that sequence that is so beautiful. And that's like, I think that's what I love about Sam Raimi is he does balance like the horror and the darkness with the beauty and the lightness as well. And uh, I've gone on and on and I still feel like I haven't scratched the surface with this guy. But the last thing I'll say is Sam Raimi, in my opinion, is not afraid to get campy. Like he will get cheesy with things and like, I mean, go watch Army of Darkness. Like this is a guy who loves his cheese, but he does it in the best way possible. And it's always this sort of like self-aware, like, okay, the way this part of the movie is being presented is super corny, but it's also awesome. And you just have to admit that because I'm going to take you for an awesome ride through the story. And that's that's really what I love about him, you know. So, uh, yeah, Drew, I don't know if you have any thoughts on Sam Raimi, but yeah, uh, one of my favorites. You covered a lot on Sam Raimi. So, like, there's not much I can say. <laughs> Absolutely. But um, what I like, I really like what you said about his childlike wonder. Um, yeah, because I really feel he has that in the sense that, you know, he he had that comment when he did Doctor Strange and the uh, uh, Multiverse of Madness. He basically he had a comment where I'm coming back to Marvel to show these guys how you really make a superhero movie. Um, <laughs> and I, and I kind of loved that. But you yeah. watch that movie and man, he was having so much fun with that film. Mm -hmm. um, but then look at his other stuff. Like, I like that you mentioned Spider-Man 3 because this Look, we could all pick apart Spider-Man 3 pretty easily, but there was some gorgeous stuff. Like, the Sandman stuff was just so well put together. It was so well yep. done. Um, the transformation sequence was great. But then look at um, Spider-Man 2 with Dr. Octopus when they, like, were trying to, like, surgically remove the limbs. Yeah. The way that was all shot and everything, it was so classic Sam Raimi, classic <laughs> Evil Dead kind of Absolutely. Like, kill everyone in the lab. Um, <laughs> they even had the uh, one doctor who had like the bone, like, you know, the circular bone saw or whatever. It yeah. is, and that's like totally an evil dead throwback. So that was amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was. And it just so there was a there's a lot to his directing style. But you're right. He is that he's almost like he's one of the biggest nerds in the director chair. You know, yeah. he's basically trying to give us the best stuff. So, yeah, I Absolutely. hear you. Absolutely. Um, all right. So my next one is I thought this I thought because of us matching and stuff, this one was going to be one I was going to bring up earlier. But that's Judd Apatow. Um, oh, that's great. I didn't even Judd, think of him, but good. Judd talk. Apatow makes 
so here's the thing about Judd Apatow. He makes a lot of comedies, right? You know, this is 40, 40 year old virgin, knocked up, you know, um, uh, the bubble, uh, you know, super bad. He makes these comedies, right? But they're incredibly real. They're incredibly true to life. And I really got to commend him for like, just like, it's almost like looking at life through his lens and then just going on an adventure. And like, you know, the first time I watched this is 40, I wasn't sure how I felt about the movie, but the more I watched that movie, it's so funny, but I'm also at that point in my life. Yeah. Right. Um, I watched knocked up after I had a kid. So like I'm watching that going, Wow, they got a lot of this right. It's like, this is yeah. so real. This is like, these conversations happen in real life. I've been there. I've been at that table. This is hilarious. Like, he's just like showing us a prism through his world. He's showing us life through the prism of, you know, his little world. And it's such, it's just good storytelling. And it's smart storytelling. So it's just, that's something that really like, you know, he's definitely falls into the category of Zack Snyder, where he's still kind of a newer one. But yeah. Yeah, Good call. I didn't see this one coming at all, but uh, Judd Apatow is great. Um, he did he did Forty Year Old Virgin, right? Yeah, he did. Okay, so I think that was the first movie of his that I saw, and I remember it was one of those things like I was in high school and my friends were going to see it, and I was kind of more on like this movie looks stupid. I do not want to take <laughs> part in this, but I went because my friends went, and by the end of the film, I was just like. No, that was actually pretty awesome. Like, I have to admit. And the thing about 40-Year-Old Virgin, as much as it's a goofy, raunchy, um, irreverent comedy, it's also, like, really smart, and it has really relatable characters, and uh, it's really real in the way that, like, if you've ever worked retail and you've had, like, your jackass coworkers and stuff, like, it, everybody in that movie felt like they could be a real person. And uh, I think all his movies are really smart in that way. Like I love uh, knocked up. Um, I'm pretty sure. I don't know if I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure he got to start directing um, a lot of the old like freaks and geeks TV show episodes. And I love that series as well. Um, and the only thing, the only thing I don't like about Judd Apatow is I think he kind of defined comedy movies from like the late 2000s like through like the past decade but I feel like he was too influential that a lot of other movies tried to copy him do you know what I mean oh, Where like they yeah. did his sort of like more improv based style comedy and stuff and it's like his movies are all amazing but some of the copycats aren't as good and I feel like that's <laughs> the only thing I don't like is he was too influential almost but still a great pick so that is the weirdest criticism I think I've heard. He's too influential. <laughs> well, it, it it happens like uh, it happens with music a lot where there'll be like a new band that's so amazing. But then a bunch of other bands copy the first band and then you get sick of the original band, if that makes sense. I, I see that happen a lot in music. But in this case, uh, I'd say it happened with movies as well. So. Sure. <laughs> sure. Well, um. I what who is your final director of the night? Um, I'm, there's a name that has not popped up yet, so I'm kind of curious <laughs> if you and I both matched on it. But yeah, it, I, I'm interested too. Um, I went with uh, Steven Spielberg. Um, okay, we, we did match on this, and I was wondering how that was going to. <laughs> this is one of those like, how could I not pick Steven Spielberg? Like he has 
directed some of the greatest movies ever made. He is somebody who he's a director who I grew up with. Like I grew up watching um, Hook and E.T. and like Close Encounters on a lot of his movies. But he's also a director that I kept growing up with because like as I was older, I started to appreciate parts of Jaws that maybe I didn't pay attention attention to as a kid and um a lot of his other movies and i just feel like i don't know how i could make this list and not not mention steven spielberg you know and uh i love that he's still doing stuff like i i loved uh ready player one and that he's still in the game but yeah he's like there's there's a finite list of people that like had to make my list or had to get so close. And for me, it was like Steven Spielberg and like uh, George Lucas was up there and he just unfortunately barely didn't make, make my list. And uh, Tarantino is the same way for me, but I just had to go with Spielberg. I mean, I don't know how you don't. So uh, I don't know what you're, what you want to say, you know, well, <laughs> the thing about Spielberg is he ultimately built my childhood. Yep. And I think about like when you just look, He's friends with George Lucas, right? Who created Star Wars. So you get some Star Wars influence. He made Jaws. He made the Indiana Jones films. He was an executive producer with the Back to the Future movies. He worked on E.T. He made Goonies. Um, He worked on Poltergeist. Um, Spielberg, throughout the years, like, you know, then you look at the newer ones, like Jurassic Park and then Minority Report and then... He was a producer for the Transformers films. And then like, like he literally built our childhood in a sense that I think a lot of us nowadays can attest all of our fandoms to one guy. Yeah. You know, it's crazy when you look at what he was into and stuff like that. And he's a wonderful, wonderful filmmaker. Some of his newer movies I'm not the biggest fan of, but that doesn't mean he's lost his touch. It just means that I've grown a little differently. And um, I he's and I think. And I think one of the reasons why I don't – I think why some of the newer stuff that he's done hasn't sit well with me with the way the other ones have is that I've seen so many Spielberg movies so many times over that I think what's happened is, is I've created Steven Spielberg tropes in my head. And oh, I gotcha. it's like, oh, that's a Spielberg trick. Like he – you know, or up, oh, well, it's a Spielberg film. Of course it's going to be shot that way. Or up, oh, that's a standard – like – Sometimes a director gets a signature shot or a signature style that they're using or whatever, and that happened. And, you know, when that happens is you get those visuals so you get an idea of what it, you know. Like we said, David Fincher has a signature look. You know, Sam Raimi has a signature look. Zack Snyder has a signature look. Spielberg doesn't always have a signature look, but there's Spielberg things that are part of all the movies that he's done. And you can see them if you know the body of work as well as I think you and I do. Yeah. So um, well, that's I, just, I also think yeah. I also think he's a guy who's been like directing movies since the 70s. And he's like, I think it's one of those things that the Lance he's ran out of tricks. Not that's not at all what I was going <laughs> to say. It's, it might be something where the the landscape of film has changed here and there. So I think sometimes if you notice a Spielberg trick, it might stick out a lot more when watching a newer film than an older one, if that makes okay. sense. But um. Either way, like, obviously, like, still an amazing director. Like, he, like you said, he, like, literally built our childhood, and uh, it's awesome. So, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so that's why he is, um, well, top of my list for the night. That's why I was saving him to the end. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, 
Um, that brings us to the end of this list. Uh, Peter, your pick next week. So what are we doing next week? <laughs> Absolutely. So I picked one that's kind of out of the blue, but we've only done a couple lists like this. Like we did our favorite dinner scenes from movies and we did our favorite chase scenes. And uh, I want to do something similar and uh, talk about our favorite battle scenes from movies. Battle um, scenes. <laughs> so obviously while put, putting my list together, I was thinking of Lord of the Rings. But um, the one rule I want to do with this is keep it to movies. I want to keep it to movies, but I also want to keep it to a number of characters. Like, I feel like a battle scene has to be at least like 10 characters or more. You know, like, I don't want it to be like six guys duking it out. But like, oh, so what you're trying to avoid is it's a battle sequence. But Captain America versus the Winter Soldier is not a battle scene. Yeah. Or even um, like the end <laughs> like of it's a fight scene versus battles. You want you're talking large scale stuff. Exactly. And I was kind of thinking, like, I feel like the airport fight scene in uh, Civil War, I feel like that might be the smallest you could go. And I feel like that was about 10 to 12 characters in that scene. You know what I mean? Um, I but I, I, I'm really thinking larger scale stuff. And like, it pains me because like the end of Man of Steel, like it, they call it the Battle of Metropolis. Like they use the word battle, but it's really Superman versus Zod. And there's well. I guess if you add everybody up, there probably is more than 10 people. But since it's mainly Superman versus Zod, I wasn't even going to include that into the list. I kind of want to look at your more larger scale tactical sort of stuff. I, so I get what you're going for. So that's uh, that'll this will be a good conversation. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, battle scenes it is. And um, yeah, let's uh, toss this episode in the can so we can uh, go work on that list. Um <laughs> Everybody, do us all a favor. Check out our website, top5report.com. There you'll find links to all of our social media, Twitter and Facebook, along with our link to an email, top5report at gmail.com. You can hit us up there. Social media, either way works. Um, We're on Google Play, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Audible. You can subscribe to us in those places. If you do, you will not miss a single episode. You can also leave us a review. We love those five stars, but we understand criticism because it helps us get better and it makes the words we say feel important. You can follow me personally on Twitter and Instagram at Drew3927. Peter, what about you? Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at NinjaPierre, and that's where I will be reminding you that a woman Lego character is to be referred to as a Lego lass. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, that's exactly the reaction I was hoping for with that one. So. Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, well, that being said, um, I'm Drew. I'm Peter. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.